Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Scott Sturt, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada and your host. The focus of this podcast is to hear from change makers and young Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season two, we'll be chatting with young Canadians about their unconventional career trajectories and what it's like to be young entrepreneurial leaders. I'm excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. Charlie Feng is the co-founder of ClearCo, a fintech firm that has invested over $1 billion across 3,000 companies. ClearCo recently raised a $100 million Series C investment round at an approximately $2 billion valuation. Previously, Charlie's built companies in artificial intelligence and machine learning and spends most of his time in product building. He's helped scale teams from zero to hundreds of people and has considerable experience in product operations and finance. Separately, Charlie Angel invests and enjoys playing video games. He is also a graduate of McGill University and a 2016 Venture for Canada Fellow. Thanks so much for joining us today, Charlie. We're really grateful to have you on the show. How are you doing this afternoon? Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I am doing pretty well, as well as well as I can be in the third uh, wave of, of the pandemic uh, here here in Ontario. But uh, doing pretty well, and I'm glad to hear uh, hear you're doing well in in Ottawa. Over the past five years, Clearco has grown uh, from a few people working out of a house to a global player in e-commerce with hundreds of employees. Can you tell us a little bit about what ClearCo does and what is your mission to help entrepreneurs? Yeah, so for, for ClearCo, our mission is really to fund the underserved markets. So these are not the typical founders you would, when you close your eyes, you're imagining that would have pop, kind of appear on TechCrunch or kind of the, uh, the, the high-tech uh, Stanford grad Facebook product manager who decides to build the next kind of big billion-dollar business. In fact, majority of the entrepreneurs that are out there uh, are quite the opposite. Um, they're, they, 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 they range from all different types of backgrounds, and oftentimes they're tackling a specific problem that they've either had their personal experiences on them themselves, or it could be a, something that's a bit more local or a bit more smaller scale. And those are a lot of the founders that we're trying to help and specifically help them in a way that uh, doesn't dilute themselves from only most of their companies. Can you give a few different examples of ClearBank or Clear ClearCo? Sorry, you guys rebranded, so I, I, I probably get that all, all yeah. the time. Probably even do that uh, sometimes imagine internally. Can you provide a few examples of ClearCo clients uh, and and kind of how you've helped those those companies uh, grow? Don't, don't worry about the name. Uh, I'm still getting used to it. Our our clients. So a few examples. So actually, one one company we funded earlier this year. Uh, they are two dietitians that. Um, are new parents. And then they realize that the supplemental kind of nutritional stuff for moms out there just kind of suck. And they're like, well, we're dietitians. We could definitely fix this. Um, so they went out and kind of built their own brand. And now they're selling this direct to consumers online. These are businesses that the way we help them is we provide them with non-dilutive financing such that it doesn't, it's not really about who you know, what your pedigree is, uh, and kind of what networks you're part of in order to raise money, but rather as long as you have a good business, because we do all of our adjudication underwriting purely based on the data, uh, we'll be able to fund them. So we really try to take the bias out of investing by uh, looking purely at the data. 
your mission is so important in essence, democratizing access to capital. And you look at often the people who get funded by venture capitalists and they're white guys who've gone to prep schools in the US and then gone to Stanford or Harvard or Yale and are you know looking to, 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 to build a successful company. And I think it's so important to democratize that access to entrepreneurship. It's core to what Venture for Canada is all about. And I just think it's a brilliant uh, model. And, and uh, I, can you speak a little bit about how ClearCo helps entrepreneurs retain more of their companies uh, and uh, some of the, the challenges that entrepreneurs have historically faced in terms of giving up equity in their company for things like Facebook ads. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right, Scott. So one of the things that we find with statistics that surprised us was that 40% of all venture capital dollar goes into Facebook and Google. And these aren't, it's not the most efficient use of capital, venture capital, right? As the name implies, it's meant for risk. It's meant to de-risk very risky propositions, like a new venture that's starting something, a new discovery of some sort. Um, and it's great to be used on R&D. And that's kind of where we believe a lot of venture capital should be spent on. But in reality, over the last decade or two, most venture capital dollars ends up becoming spent on Google and Facebook because that's how you grow your business. The faster you grow, the more money you raise. And then the founders, the more you dilute yourself. Uh, instead, what we do is basically look at the data of these companies. So whether we get data from Shopify, Stripe, Google, Facebook, and based on that data, we can see if their business is healthy um, from kind of the unit economics. And for as long as you're making more than a dollar for every dollar you put in, that's a profitable, like that's a machine that's working. And ideally you aren't diluting yourself. So the way our, our uh, funding works is we fund, let's say a hundred thousand dollars to a company and uh, we get paid back as a percentage of their revenue. So that way we share both the upside and downside with the company. And, uh, it, it's, it's also non-dilute in that sense. It's brilliant in many ways, both it allows an entrepreneur to retain more of the equity, which at the end of the day is uh, perhaps the most valuable asset that the entrepreneur has, and, and also the ability to control their company for the long run, which I think is, is particular. And that's why a lot of people you know, pursue entrepreneurship is that freedom. Uh, and uh, you know, I think it's just, it, it's a brilliant too, to basically empower entrepreneurs to, to only seek venture capital when they actually need it, which is for research and development activities and not to spend it on millions of dollars of Facebook or, or, or Google ads. One of the things that I think is, is fascinating about ClearCo, and, and I think that this probably applies to many companies that, that reach unicorn status, is it was definitely a bumpy road. It wasn't like any entrepreneurial journey or life. Uh, it was not purely linear. There were lots of ups and downs. And your business model has actually evolved uh, substantially since you, since you first started. So can you walk us a little uh, sort of through uh, on two levels? First off, uh, your journey with, with ClearCo and uh, kind of how you first uh, launched the, the company with, with Michelle uh, and, and Andrew and, and your other co-founders. And then how has ClearCo evolved over time in terms of what was your really initial focus? And then how did that change to where you are today? First started, the, the idea was tax planning for Uber drivers. And it turns out that people don't really care about that. We learned very quickly that uh, people, really, especially Uber drivers, really only cared about tax planning two weeks of the year. Uh, so it made that a very difficult business to do. A, a lot of what we were doing along the way was trying to figure out where can we add the most value from a banking and a financial infrastructure. Uh, we started ClearBank with kind of the mission of, can we better help democratize capital? Can we help kind of entrepreneurs and people who are pursuing their own kind of goals and dreams to not need to be pitching and kind of fundraising six months of the year 
in order to do that. There's quite a few stops along the way. Our first iteration was with Ubers. We first were trying to figure out, do they need tax planning? Turns out not really. Uh, next, we kind of started exploring, well, what about kind of getting paid out faster? So we had kind of instant pay for Uber. It was okay, uh, but what we quickly learned was that when you fund Uber drivers, it's one of those businesses where the amount of revenue an Uber driver makes is not correlated to the amount of money they could receive. Giving an Uber driver $10,000 doesn't really help them make more money. They really need to drive more. It's one of those uh, where it's one of those businesses where it's not resource constraint, but it's more time constraint. Uh, so then we were looking for basically what, what are businesses that are more resource capital constraint? And we landed upon Airbnb. Uh, so kind of in the vacation rental space where, yes, you can make a renovation, we can get another property to increase your business. It still wasn't as capital constraint of a business as e-commerce. And that's kind of where we landed. And what ClearCo was known for today uh, is that for most e-commerce businesses, as if they have a good product and a good market that they're targeting, for as long as their unit economics and their, their business model is sound, they should be able to keep growing, right? So it's very easy to tell from their Facebook data, their Shopify data that, oh, for every dollar they're putting in, they're getting $2 out. And if that's the case, they should be, you should be able to keep funding them. Um, so that was kind of our kind of windy road to get to where we are today. And as, as for myself, uh, to actually, it was through Venture for Canada. So uh, I remember I was on a, I was uh, taking, taking, a, taking a train from Ottawa to, to Toronto this one weekend and uh, got a call from Venture for Canada to meet up with Andrew Michel. And it was kind of a luck of a draw. They were just in Toronto for a couple of days. And uh, we, we had a good conversation. And then a day later, I flew down to, to San Francisco to join them. And uh, the rest is history. It is pretty remarkable, the journey from, from the, the three of you working in a house in San Francisco to now a multi-billion dollar uh, company, uh, a real Canadian success story and just so uh, inspiring. And, and also, I think a, a testament to the importance of perseverance that uh, I, often you need to go through a couple different business models uh, and uh, and not be too beholden to, to one specific uh, kind of idea. So on that point of pivoting, uh, you know, you're also an angel investor. You see lots of different entrepreneurs and all through ClearCode too, you see thousands of, you know, or different kind of companies. What advice would you give to a founder in terms of knowing when to quit in the sense that sometimes it just doesn't make sense to pursue an idea anymore. Or frankly, sometimes it doesn't make sense to pursue a company anymore. And it just, it's a sunk cost and it's time to, to, to restart. So um, we, failure is something that often entrepreneurs don't like to talk about, but what advice would you give to, to, to an entrepreneur on, on when to decide to quit? If you look at ClearCo's journey, we had many, essentially you could call them pivots, you could call them quitting the previous business model, but there were very distinct points where we essentially moved on for, from a private segment of the business that generated at that time, a significant portion of the revenue of the company's revenue. And we let that go to pursue something else. And I'd say there's probably two mental models that we really uh, stuck to. Um, one is the idea of writing down what your risky assumptions are. So I think for any idea or any business, uh, you could probably put on a, write on a piece of paper of what needs to be true for that idea to be a massive success. Um, and so for example, for our for, for Uber, uh, when we were kind of doing that business, there were a couple of things that needed to be true. Like one, for example, was, is the, when, is the data flow coming from Uber good enough for us to write models and build systems around? 
Uh, number two uh, was that um, do Uber drivers want the capital that we're providing them? And then lastly is if we were to give money to Uber drivers, will they be driving enough to actually pay back? Or would they quit Uber? Because Uber a lot of times was a, the, kind of a in-between jobs kind of you would work on Uber and maybe two months later, you find a full-time job and you stop driving for Uber. Um, and what we learned was that that last assumption, a lot of people, uh, after they take money, they might find a full-time job, which makes them stop driving for Uber in, in the future. And it made the business model not work. So I think there's two mental models that we really use. One is you would write down all the risky assumptions of a business uh, and just kind of solve one at a time. And then you can either prove out if those assumptions are true or doesn't work. And then number two that we uh, kind of hold ourselves to is just to create timelines or create milestones for, for yourself where uh, there, there's a question of, do I keep going? It's always very easy to say, I'll just go on for one more month or two more months. Uh, but it's important to kind of draw lines in the sand and say, if we don't hit this kind of this milestone by this date, uh, we will reevaluate. Re Those are great uh, pieces of advice. And I think it's something so important. Sometimes you can convince yourself, uh, I think anyone can, that, oh, this I need to do this or or to continue down this path. Or we can get uh, stuck in this, this mindset of, oh, I've invested so much time and money pursuing this specific path. We can't give up. Even if the path, you know, the whole sunk cost fallacy, if the path doesn't make sense. Uh, so I really like that in terms of drawing a line in the sand and saying, hey, that if we don't reach the goal of this target, this is a firm line where uh, it doesn't matter the money and time we've invested, we're moving on to something else that potentially is more, is more fruitful. One of the things you've also talked about in the past, Charlie, is the concept of founder market fit, which I think is something really interesting and very pertinent to, to a lot of people who are looking to be entrepreneurs. Can you tell us about what is founder market fit and why do you think is it uh, it's important? So founder market fit, it's actually quite similar to product market fit. So the idea of product market fit is that, you know, you have a, a product that services a market um, and that, that market needs that product. Uh, the, the reality is the founders are the ones that create the product. It's not just the founders, like the founding team and kind of the entire team, but that whoever the founders are, especially at the start of a company, it becomes the DNA of what the product looks like. So the, the question is, is that the right team to tackle that market? And oftentimes, if you, um, if you look at the successful companies or the companies that did well, oftentimes the, the, you'll, you'll notice that the product that gets created at the end of the day is very much a resemblance of what the founders were good at. One great example is Airbnb, for example. Airbnb has a beautiful design. And a lot of that is actually resembles because the founders, the three founders, I think two out of the three are RISD designers and they, they're very passionate in that space. There's a question of the market's problem. Do the, are the founders the right set of people to tackle that problem? And I think that's something I look for a lot when I'm angel investing, for example, because the number one, you need to identify that the, there's a big market for it and that the, the problem is a uh, attractive problem to solve. But then number two, you have to figure out is the team you're investing in the right group of people to solve that problem and tackle that problem. And in an increasingly competitive world where talent is global, it is perhaps more important than ever for an entrepreneur to have that unique skill sets, knowledge, experience, network to really be able to be successful in a, in a, in a sector. And it's also backed up by the data that 
when a study from the University of California, Berkeley, of all of the, you have, I think, 10,000 different venture capital investments and uh, tracking su the success of those investments in terms of like our, our exits, the typical successful venture-backed entrepreneur is often uh, in their late 30s uh, or 40s. They have deep domain knowledge and experience and expertise in the sector. They have deep networks. All of this makes sense in the kind of context of you're talking about is that while there can be really successful people launching a company kind of right out of school, it's really challenging to do that unless someone has that specific founder market fit. Some people do have that founder market fit at the very beginning. And there's obviously lots of really successful companies founded by people at the very beginning of their careers. But I think a good advice for, for, for many aspiring entrepreneurs is to think around what, what are those unique uh, uh, characteristics and knowledge uh, experience network that, that somebody has that can make them successful in a, in a given business. Cause it's so much more challenging if there's not that founder market fit that, that Charlie uh, talked about. Yeah. And, and you'll find that uh, a lot of, for example, you bring up a great point because a lot of enterprise SaaS companies end up being founded by founders who have, who are, who've been in the workplace for a little bit longer because they know how to sell into enterprises. And that's a skill set that if you're just out of grad, you're just out of school and you're 22 years old, you might not have. You never sold a you know, seven-figure deal and don't know how to navigate the political org of a Microsoft or an Oracle. Um, and that becomes very challenging. And I think one thing that's actually quite interesting, I think I read a study on this, where uh, you'll find that most, most of the successful uh, first-time founders, like Facebook, for example, uh, they oftentimes are tackling a more market risk problem where, so for example, Facebook, it was a question of, can do people want the Facebook at that time, right? It, it wasn't something uh, that was a execution risk. It was more so, is this idea something that people even wanted? And then a lot of second time founders actually uh, end up tackling more execution risk problems where it becomes a question of, I have this idea, the market is kind of proven. I know people want this, but can you make the right sales? Can you create the right partnerships? And can you actually deliver on what you want to deliver? And you'll see a lot of second-time founders actually pursue more enterprise B2B companies than first-time founders, which are generally speaking more B2C. That is very interesting. Uh, and uh, that's an interesting trend I was, I was not aware of. On the first point about uh, people who have enterprise sales or enterprise software experience uh, in a big company then going to, to create uh, their own firm, a great example of that is Mark Benioff uh, of Salesforce. Uh, they, I highly recommend his memoir uh, to any listeners behind the cloud. And he talks about his experience launching Salesforce, which, you know, obviously today is now worth what 30, 40, $50 billion, one of the most successful enterprise software companies in the world. He started his career at Oracle uh, and worked in Oracle for, I think, close to 10 years. And uh, he, he became extremely knowledgeable about software sales. And then, sort of saw the cloud as this emerging uh, space in terms of uh, software as a service and sort of in the cloud versus the traditional 25 years ago, which was the, the big, yeah, actually getting, getting hardware. Uh, and he, he actually ended up getting Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, uh, as one of his first main investors, his former employer, to help him kind of uh, get going. And, and I think it was in his probably early 30s at the time. But just as in the great example of... Uh, Mark Benioff had the knowledge, he had the, the relevant networks, uh, he had the expertise to make him uniquely successful in launching and building a company like Salesforce. 
And he certainly he could have failed. And, and there's lots of other people who had that, that experience, but uh, his background definitely helped him at the right time, launch Salesforce and build it into the company it is today. On the topic of entrepreneurship as well, Charlie, you are an active angel investor. Uh, and uh, it's one of the things that you enjoy the most doing kind of uh, outside of, of, of ClearCo. So what advice do you have for would-be angel investors? One of the things I've definitely observed is that probably in the last like five years, angel investing is, is something that is a lot tr more trendy than it used to be. I feel like in the Bay Area and in certain places, like angel investing was like, was always popular for a long time. Now it's like a status symbol. I find on Twitter, I'll see like people saying, oh, I angel, I am proud to announce my angel investment on this, or this is my fifth angel investment. It's the new, it's the new sort of saying, you know, Rolex or this new sort of status symbol in, in the, the 2020s. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of basically would be angel investors, people who have capital who want to put their money towards uh, helping entrepreneurs. What advice do you have for these would be angel investors on how they can actually be successful as angel investors, both in the sense of creating a monetary return for themselves potentially, but also actually helping the entrepreneurs that they're that they're looking to work with. I'd also say that I probably spend my time outside of Clearco more on video games than I do on on angel investing. But uh, it is something that initially it wasn't really uh, something that I was trying to do, uh, but more so uh, th there were friends of mine that started uh, companies, and I just genuinely wanted to to help where I could. And having a bit of skin in the game actually really, in hindsight, actually did great things. One, it kind of brought our friendship closer. And two, it kind of gave me more of a vested interest to, to be more helpful when, whenever they ask for help. I think two things to note for angel investing from, from my experience. One is just to really be betting on the founders at the end of the day. I, I noticed there's a lot of angel investings or angel investors that ask for a lot of diligence when the company is just an idea and they're asking for what does the market look like? Do you have a pro forma? Show me your, uh, show me your CRM, your pipeline. And the truth is, those things will all change. At least from my experience, from building a couple of companies, uh, the first eighteen months of a company uh, changes quite a bit before you start to solidify what what that company you're really building becomes. Um, so if you're investing kind of at the get go, as most angel investors do, uh, if you're betting on the idea, you're probably in for kind of a rude awakening. Rather, you should really be betting on the people. Um, so that, that's number one. And number two is, I think the game economically, if you, if you were to do this on a spreadsheet and math, you have to take enough bets in order for angel investing to actually pay off. It's one of those things where if you are going to angel invest, don't, it's one of those games where like, you can't stop at three or you can't stop at two. Uh, you need to actually build a bit of a portfolio of 10, 20, um, such that you give yourself the likelihood or probability that one of them will be successful. And I think they go hand in hand because it kind of makes yourself a bad angel investor if you only invest in three, because then you know that all your assets are not diversified and you'll put an unnatural pressure on those three companies because one of those three better work, right? If you actually invest in more than three, kind of like 10 or 20 companies, you naturally become a better angel investor because you don't kind of put unnatural pressure on those founders that you are, you've invested or helped. And I think the best investors are oftentimes the ones that are there to help and support the founders along the rocky path and there along the way, but also not 
not forcing themselves, not getting the way of the founders and kind of letting them to operate when they need the space to do so. Yeah, the best the best angel investors, they all are just advisors in general. They're there when you need them, but they're not they're not in your face and forcing their advice uh, that is, uh, it to you. What, one um, uh, great anecdote that was shared uh, by Dan, Daniel DeBow. So he is a executive at Shopify, sold a company to Salesforce, uh, has been involved with other exits. Uh, and he's a serial angel investor. He's one angel investor, of the year in, in Canada. And he recently spoke to Venture for Canada fellows and he shared that he had 80 active uh, angel investments. And I think it's an example, I mean, he, he has lots of experience and has invested a ton of, uh, across a variety of different things, but it's a real example of where diversification and investing in a lot of different uh, kind of companies uh, over, over time. And one of the things he shared is he actually has, there was one company he invested in and it was, I think it was like 15 or 16 years ago, and it's still an active angel investment uh, from, from like 50. And that was his first one that he ever did. And uh, I think it's a testament to, to really thinking long-term too. Like sometimes you want, might not get your capital uh, for 15, 20 years. Uh, there might not be a liquidation event, but it's about being there for the journey and it's seeing that wild ride. And, and also recognizing that like it's in, uh, you know, all these studies on venture capital returns is it's something like 2% of investments make 80% of, of, of the returns. And, uh, you know, 60, 70% of investments are write-offs that you end up losing your complete investment. So you have to have, uh, there's a great book, The Psychology of Money that I recently read. And one of the things it talks about is that uh, when you're investing, you have to kind of pay a, a ticket basically, which is the risk uh, to, to like get on the train of potentially high returns. Uh, and that part of that means being okay with losing a lot of money. So on that point about kind of angel investors writing off investments, what advice do you have to, to would-be angel investors on how to, to kind of manage this risk and just being okay with potentially losing, you know, a fair amount of money on different investments? Actually, I like that you mentioned it's that analogy with a ticket of risk, because I really do think, I actually think about risk very similar to the way you might play poker or you might play um, kind of one of those gambling games, I suppose. But poker is a great analogy where uh, a, a lot about poker is actually bankroll management. It's like, how do you manage your bankroll and how do you manage how much do you bet per hand? Because even if you have a great hand, like a pocket aces, there's still probability that you'll lose. Um, and that's the same with kind of any investing. But I think angel investing specifically, it's one of those where uh, the risk of losing is probably pretty high. If you do win, it will be a 10x or you know, 100x return. What that, what that means is that you need to be able to, so for, for example, it depends on how much, I guess, money you have in the bank that you want to set aside for angel investing. You need to be able to share it proportionally. So if you, Dan DeVoe might be able to write bigger checks than you because he has more money to be able to write um, over the course of maybe, let's say a year to 80 or a hundred kind of companies. Uh, I personally don't. Uh, so a lot of my angel checks are actually much more on the smaller end because I, rather than kind of writing one normal or big check to one angel investment, I'd rather write five smaller checks to five companies. And that starts to allow me to be diversified across multiple bets, right? You have to get many of those tickets, if you will. I love the analogy of poker and investment. Have you ever read a book, Thinking in Bets? Yes, one of my one of my favorite books. It is a fantastic book. How, how would you describe the kind of thesis of the book uh, in a nutshell to, to our listeners? It has, uh, I'd recommend people to, to read the book. It has a lot of great, uh, great lessons in there. The one big lesson that I took away from the book that I, actually bring a lot to work as well, is uh, she calls it resulting. Um, but it's basically the idea of a lot of times as humans, we tie a good outcome to the right decision. 
and we say, so for example, oh, we played this hand, let's say in poker, and we won. So therefore, that was the right choice. Um, when a lot of times you actually need to split that up. You could play a perfect hand and still lose, and that's okay. And I think a lot of times in our, in our team or in our startup, uh, we think about it the same way where every month or every sprint, we want to make sure we're taking swings or bets that could potentially have good upside. You build a new product, you build a new feature, um, but also understand that with any of these, there's a chance of failure and it's okay. You could be wrong three times in a row, but it doesn't mean that you need to stop or you made the wrong bet. It just, so make sure that we, we split up the failure versus the decision itself. And perhaps even if we made three you know, wrong swings, to keep swinging and keep keep, uh, keep going. I love that point from the book. It's one of the things that really uh, stuck with me. I read the book uh, actually based on a recommendation of another podcast guest a few months ago. Uh, I read it in February and that line stuck with me so much because so often people, they'll take credit for success and then they'll blame failure on bad luck. And, uh, you know, I think the other thing there was interesting, I was just reading um, uh, in the Psychology of Money book, they, um, they quote Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist who, only psychologist who won the Nobel Prize for economics. And uh, they quote Daniel Kahneman saying that when he, they've done a study where he's kind of asking entrepreneurs on, on what, what percent of sort of their success is related to their, their work, like their, their decisions, their strategy. Uh, and the typical answer is around 80%. That's what an entrepreneur says. And his whole thing is that life is way more random and there's way more and, it, and it, there's way more uncertainty in the world than, than we, we like to, to admit. And I think as, as we sit 14 months into a global pandemic where we wish we wouldn't have been able to necessarily predict two years ago, I think it's, a, it's a really important for people to internalize like there is so much in the world that we, we don't control. And uh, as even as an entrepreneur, there is just a lot of luck that happens, both bad luck and good luck. Uh, and I, I think that, that, that the, the other point just relating to thinking in bets uh, something I also loved in that book is the concept of poker versus chess in life. Chess, there's no luck. It's all skill. Poker is very analogous to life because it is that mixture of both. There's a, a luck element, but it's also skill. And it's to say that life is not purely a game of chance. What you do and the decisions you make matter. But it is also fundamentally shaped by, by luck and, and, and chance. So what, what are your thoughts uh, on, on how entrepreneurs should approach uh, luck and chance uh, and uh, yeah, and, and just the kind of recognition of, of how much uh, chance can shape an entrepreneur's success or, or not? I think, I think luck has to deal with, has to do with most of at least uh, where I'm at, where I'm at today. And there is that kind of saying of, you know, being prepared for when luck, luck is there to help you uh, or being ready when, yeah, being prepared and being being ready kind of when when the opportunity comes. But for, for a lot of times, I think I would have never predicted that thought for VFC, the, I, I was able to connect with Andrew Michelle, right? Like that, that's not something I would have been able to predict it. And had that not happened, or had even the weeks not matched up in terms of when they were coming to Toronto for a visit and when I was going to Toronto, who knows what would have happened, right? So I think there's a lot of things in, in life that's just coincidence or luck that uh, as, as they appear. And I, I, but I do think as an entrepreneur, your, your, your job is not to control or fight luck like that. That is what it is, uh, but rather try to capitalize on it and try to recognize when you're being, when you're getting lucky and ride the waves. I think a, lo a lot of times, similar to what the book, what the book said, we, we think it's our own doing when we get lucky and then 
when things don't go in our way, we think it's, oh, it's, it's all this bad luck. And I think the, the, the way for entrepreneurs to, to kind of, the way we kind of navigate the, the market is really the market and the luck, those are kind of forces that will happen. And we would just have to react the way, whichever way works best. Uh, and I think the other important thing is the budget for the failures, um, because it will come. Uh, if you're swinging enough times, there will be times you miss. So the question is, have you, do you have enough of a allocation to those misses? A lot of times when we think about kind of I mean, when we're planning for a roadmap or when we're planning for a, a launch of some sort, what happens when three of those misses? What happens if a bunch of those misses? Being kind of being prepared for those, being kind of being prepared for those misses um, is very helpful ahead of time. It's uh, not not to repeat the psychology of money. I feel like I'm on a uh, just selling this book, but it, I just I've been reading it, so it's it's top of mind. He makes a really one of his main kind of twenty lessons is very similar, where the author makes the case that it is really important to to save. Um, you know, money basically and resources to be able to invest in the future, because uh, both in the sense of to realize an opportunity that might maybe presents itself in terms of luck, but also in the case if there's something catastrophic that happens, for instance, if somebody is highly leveraged uh, and they have, if they're a company, let's say, and they have taken on huge amounts of debt and uh, they can, you know, they're just making their interest payments and then they just get some bad luck. Well, that company is potentially sunk. Uh, it's, it's, it's done. Uh, it's, it's fragile versus it to reference another book and it seemed to leave anti-fragile. Anti How can you make it so that, you know, if, if a company, you know, if, if you get hit by lightning and there's some horrible thing that happens that you're, you, that, that uncertainty and that, 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 that challenge actually makes you stronger. Uh, and the concept of anti-fragility is, is, have you read the, have you, are you familiar with anti-fragility? Yep. yep. I, I, I read most of his books, big fan of him. He is a great writer. I'll, Nassim Tlaib, is a, he's a little over the top in his writing style. Uh, he definitely does not have an ego problem, but uh, he, I agree, his, book, his books, uh, I think are super um, interesting. Uh, for our listeners, can you define anti-fragility? Uh, and uh, out of interest, how is the concept of anti-fragility, um, do you think, guided uh, sort of ClearCo clear and, and, and your kind of entrepreneurial journey and, and how you look at businesses? I think the good analogy he uses is um, if uh, you can have something that's very sturdy, like concrete or something, but it doesn't actually make it anti-fragile. As you put more shock through the system, it could actually shatter and never be able to be recovered. While you have other systems that the more chaos or shock you put through the system, the better or the system kind of thrives on it. And I think maybe this ties a bit into culture. Um, I, I don't think the uh, Mirko or the, the company is anti-fragile, uh, but, but by any means kind of on its own as a product. However, I, I do think that when you think about it at a level of a company or a business, the, the outputs of, a, of the company is simply, if you boil back, like the financials are kind of the outputs that comes out of a company, but the inputs are really people, right? That, that are working on the on the company. So how do they react to situation? What do they do from a day to day? Uh, when, when I think about kind of the term of anti-fragile, the question is when you inject some degree of chaos or kind of market changes to the, the company, how does your team or how does your culture, I suppose, react to it? And I think that's one thing that um, I found good teams uh, do well in is that given the same, I guess, luck or situation that kind of uh, falls on founding team or just a company in general, how they take what that information and run with it is very different. One of the things that we try to try to talk a lot about is the, the idea of making making kind of quick and reversible decisions and being okay with mistakes. 
the idea of if we make a decision and as long as they're reversible, all we have to do is clean up after our own mistakes. They were sorry, clean after that, try to figure out what to do next. Um, but that is much better than essentially being paralyzed and then kind of not making a decision. The, the, the second part is really around that, that kind of that goes back to that budgeting of being okay with making a certain number of mistakes and budgeting for that, such that not everything has to go perfect in order for the plan to, to work out. There's an excellent uh, Jeff Bezos uh, letter to Amazon shareholders where he writes about uh, the Amazon fire, which was a colossal failure that Amazon did. And yeah, I think that it came out in like 2004, 2005. And he basically was like, yeah, we really failed. We spent a lot of money on this and it just didn't work. And he's like, and he says to shareholders, get ready. We're going to have a lot more big failures. Uh, but obviously now Amazon is like one of the most valuable companies uh, in, in the world. Uh, and it's a testament that to build something, you often have to do things that just fail. And it's, it's being okay with, with failure. And, uh, and, and I like, really like the concept, I think of anti-fragility and culture. Cause I think that that's something that's so important. Like in, I think both in, in everything from raising kids to just like people, right. It's like life is tough. There's constant challenges and, and, uh, new things come up every day and, and how the concept of, uh, a lot of times people talk about resilience which I, which I think is, is something we talk about at Venture Can. It's definitely important. But the concept of anti-fragility is really interesting one. Like not just being resilient, but you know, what, what, um, uh, what doesn't you know, kill someone actually makes them stronger. Uh, and kind of like thinking about that in the sense of, because uh, it, and it's interesting, even in psychology, um, I've been reading a, a lot more on the concept of post-traumatic growth, which is, you know, most people have heard about post-traumatic stress, which is a real thing and is very serious. And it happens, you know, after a serious situation. On the flip side, though, there's a concept of post-traumatic growth, which is widely studied and, and is something that, that happens in as much as 60% of cases when someone goes through a traumatic experience, which is that somebody goes through this experience and they actually emerge more resilient, more impactful, stronger as, as a person. But there's this kind of prevailing narrative sometimes in society, which I think can be dangerous, that really tough situations break people and that, that they can just never come back from it when kind of in reality, there's a potential. Uh, and I think it's so important to emphasize that concept of anti-fragility in people. And then in a company culture, it's something that's super important. I, I think back to my, as I'm going through my career and kind of the last several years, where are the areas where I grew the most? And oftentimes they were, they did come out of failure. They did come out of a situation where it didn't go well or things uh, or, or series of situations sometimes where it was kind of a failure after a failure. I think you're absolutely right where there, there is a nuance there where it's kind of that, uh, like if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger kind of idea where it could go two ways. One is that the stress and kind of the, the event, I suppose, really gets to you. Reject all of that kind of going to the future. And the other way is that you kind of grow from it. Um, I think Goes back, going back to culture, I think the community at which you surround yourself, like, can you find that support network? Can you find that the people around you to, can you surround yourself with people that can be there for you during those dark times, if you will, and kind of help you pick yourself back up. And if you do, that will help you grow a lot more. And I think startup is interesting because startup environments naturally have a lot more, I think, the if you think about it on a graph of like, kind of going back to the world of risk of volatility, um, it, it is startups by nature has a lot of volatility as the highs are a lot higher than a big corporation and the lows are a lot lower than a big corporation. Now, the question is, how do you create a, a surrounding around yourself as an individual person? The lows don't, doesn't 
quote unquote kill you. And the highs are always good, of course, but like that you kind of bounce back, things don't go well, or the company doesn't go well. You, you hit a kind of another, another roadblock along the way. It's an area that uh, I think helped my personal development and career tremendously. Uh, I'd probably credit most of my growth to that. Uh, of course, there's a lot of you know, mentors along the way and kind of opportunities, whether it's from ClearCo or, or other areas that help. Uh, but it kind of goes to, to me a, a lot of times, the we compare it back to the risk analogy, what happens in the market, my company in life is a bit more of hands you, the hand you're dealt with. Uh, it's, it's a bit of luck and it happens, there's ups and there's downs. Uh, but how you react to it, um, that that's kind of up to you. Uh, Scott, as you mentioned, you mentioned kind of Venture for Canada, uh, there's Founder City, and then there's Operator Skill. There's a few of these communities that I've actually gone out and seeked for myself. They, there's a couple of learnings that I took really from it. One is that that support network where you kind of go to um, during the lows is very helpful. It helps you kind of ground yourself to be able to talk to someone about these problems. Because a lot of times I think, especially when you're in the, in the thick of a problem, um, a lot of times narratives form in your head, whether it's a disagreement with a colleague or a dispute at, in the company, you start to form narratives where, oh, someone's out to get you or uh, something's not going your way because, because of X, Y, Z reasons. When in reality, everyone is just trying to do their best work. Being able to talk through those problems with kind of a, kind of your confidence or people you trust is a very helpful exercise. And I think it's also a very de-stressing exercise. Uh, and then number two, I, I, I think, like you mentioned, Scott, one of the things that's a bit humbling where you kind of realize is that uh, your problems that you might face, A, you're not alone, like they're not a unique problem to you. Uh, that one of the things that I realized is that everyone faces the same problems. They come in different flavors and they come kind of at different times. Two, two things was really interesting. One is that at different stages of the company, so companies that are going through the, let's say 50 to hundred people kind of growth stage, very, very similar problems. Companies that are going from the series A or the C to the series A stage, also very, very similar problems. You could be in two completely different fields. Like one could be in health tech, the other one could be in FinTech like us, uh, but very similar problems at the end of the day. And you start to realize that your problem A is not that unique because I think when you're in the problem, you always feel that like, this is a problem that's only happening to me. Why is it happening to me? Um, and uh, you quickly realize that it's not just, it's not just you. And uh, number two, you kind of, as, as, uh, as you mentioned, Scott, that you start to notice that, you know, it's not just that problems are happening to you, problems are happening to everyone, right? It makes you kind of, it, it creates a bit more normalization that like, this is, this is okay, that this isn't that big of a deal. Um, and then you'll be able to get through it and you kind of help each other get through these, these situations and hopefully kind of come out stronger on the other end. That is, I think, a great overview of the importance of community. And one of the things that I think has been certainly eye-opening to me in the last year is I always thought, oh, my you know, brain's pretty logical. I, I, uh, a lot of the time it's telling me the right things. And then you just, I began to realize this, our brains are just like, they're not logical, that they have so many different uh, distortions. In fact, to, to mention Daniel Kahneman again, he's done all this research and there's over 150 different cognitive distortions that we have. Like our perceptions of reality uh, are often completely off. Like we tell our, you know, narratives in our head, our, our, our own selves are often sometimes our own biggest saboteurs. And uh, it's sometimes the opportunity to talk to, uh, to another person or other people about a problem can kind of open our eyes to say, actually, my brain was kind of tricking me there. And uh, that is like not the reality. Like, like I've been saying this whole narrative in my head, but it's actually not even true. 
and or that doesn't make any sense. Why was I thinking that? Uh, and uh, I, it's so important, I think, to get the advice of other people. And, and what I love about specific communities that are high trust is that you can share really, uh, you know, private things and you can build relationships with people where you can be completely honest. And I think that that's something that if there's not that trust there, it's really tough to, I think, get that meaningful advice. The same, I think, in mentorship or any kind of relationships. Like if you're going to be getting advice from somebody and you're really investing time in the relationship, you need to trust that person like almost 100% because uh, otherwise you're, you're probably not going to be sharing all the details and then you're not going to be getting like the, the necessarily best quality of advice from, from, from people. So um, yeah, it's, 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 I think really interesting. Uh, I, one thing just for our listeners, uh, they'll probably know about venture for Canada and we, we describe founder city, but can you briefly describe, um, operators, uh, guild and kind of what the organization does? It's, it started from, uh, uh, by two people named Casey and, and Jamie out of, uh, out of San Francisco. They were it's basically a group of kind of operators down in the Bay area. This was started kind of, I think over 10 years ago where, uh, they were just trying to kind of similar problems. It was steel CFOs, kind of operators and companies that wanted to talk through problems and kind of share ideas. They now have kind of chapters all over, uh, all over the world and including ones in, in Canada and Toronto, a very similar mindset of you'll find that, you know, uh, an operator, whether you're, C, kind of your CEO or CFO in a, in a small company versus a big company, a lot of the problems are the same. They, they become problems that kind of trade, trade ideas, talk through, and be able to learn from each other. Yeah, there, history uh, doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, as Mark Twain is said to, to have once said. Uh, and I think it's so relevant is that very rarely is one experience exactly the same, but often they are very, very similar, uh, uh, especially I think just in dealing with people and relationships. Like there are so many different similarities, but also just anything, finances, operations, kind of you name it. Charlie, it has been wonderful speaking with you. It is your journey with ClearCo is uh, so inspiring. Uh, literally from a house in San Francisco with three people, Canadians with a vision to uh, now a multi-billion dollar company uh, that you're the co-founder of uh, that employs hundreds of Canadians and is supporting thousands of entrepreneurs around the world. We've covered a ton of different topics. We've talked about everything, anti-fragility, thinking in bets, uh, your journey with ClearCo, uh, the importance of community, uh, video games, you name it. We've covered a really wide range of different topics. So thanks so much for coming on the show today. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions 
expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.